Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. You've probably seen articles online saying millionaires have five streams of revenue. Millionaires have seven streams of revenue. And you're probably wondering, how do I become a millionaire? Well, the first question is, why do you want to be a millionaire? Is it just because you can buy more crap for you? Or is it because you can set up your life? Is it because you can be more generous? Is it just a number that you want to achieve like any other goal in your life? I mean, there's a whole thing there about why you'd want to become a millionaire. But I thought we would talk today about different revenue streams or call them passive income. Some of them will be passive, some will be less passive, some will be active. So these streams of income, and we're going to drill down on each of them. We're also going to talk about these concepts in a little bit more detail. And today I'm joined by the newest host in the My Millennial Stable, Nick Bradley, the host of My Millennial Investor. Good afternoon, Nick. Hello, Glenn. Thanks for having me. No worries. So, you've hosted a handful of episodes on the My Millennial Investor podcast. How are you finding it? Like, did you ever wake up one day and think, oh, wow, I'm a famous podcaster? When you get that first royalty check of $3.99, you realize I have arrived and I know you're busy down there on the island, but it's I think it's been 12 episodes now. Wow. Gosh. Which, that's, that's more fingers than I have. Mm. And you're from Alaska, whatever that means. We still grow 10 up there. Exactly. So we'll talk a little bit later about the My Millennial Investor podcast, but if you do want more kind of nerdy, investor-only, wild stuff, uh, jump over and have a subscribe to My Millennial Investor But until then, Nick, you ready to go through some of these streams of income? Absolutely. Let's dive right into it. Look, in this episode, we are going to be sharing a lot of stuff about making money. It's going to be encouraging to some people. Some people may find it disgusting. Uh, choose wherever you want to be on that spectrum. But I will disclose that My Millennial Money is a podcast about investing. My Millennial Money is about how you can get the most out of your money. And, you know, full disclosure, Nick has shared on his podcast, his net worth is over a million dollars. My net worth is over, I think, $8 or something at the moment. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I... I am in that highest tax bracket camp. I am in that millionaire camp. But we need to just first and foremost call out uh, the privilege here. And that is so important when we are talking about this stuff. Uh, You've got two white dudes. Nick, you're in your 50s now. Just hit 40. There you go. And I'm in my mid to late 30s. Uh, I look forward to coming down for your birthday party next week. (laughs) 
And I'm not 40 next week. But um, look, there's privilege here. And we just want to acknowledge that. You know, a couple of white dudes. I don't have kids, so I haven't had to spend all that money on kids. Nick's actually probably been better at saving money than I've been. I'm good at earning it. I'm not good at saving it. Yeah, we're actually a little different ends of the spectrum. I don't actually have a very high income. I've just done well saving and planning ahead, even though I do have two kids, which are quickly sucking the money out of my net worth at a very rapid rate. Yeah, and I'm just really good at spending. Although I was thinking as a party introduction lies like, hi, I'm Glenn. I'm a recovered spender. And it's taken me probably 20 years to work out that, oh, you can actually be content with what you've got and not have to spend it all. Anyway, that's a whole other thing. So just putting a a bookmark there to say we acknowledge that both of us are considered wealthy uh, relative to a lot of people uh, in our respective societies. But also, if you want to go one step further, if you're listening to this, you are probably considered in the top 50% of wealthy people on a global scale, uh, maybe even top 10%. So a lot of privilege going around the corners and in the hallways of this chat, but we're just saying that uh, to start with. Now, Nick, I think, do you want to open with any type of opening statements on, you know, these streams of revenue and like, do you want to open, say anything? Yeah, I think where this episode idea came from, we, my first podcast that I put out a couple months ago now was based on kind of finding different income streams. Like my whole stick for my show is to go out and find the the most unique income streams. I want to search the market. I want to find ideas that maybe you haven't thought of, maybe things that you wouldn't even think to make money on, different ways of investing your money. And I think that comes out of really not ever having a high paying job, a W-2 wage. I've had to look and scrape and figure out different like side hustles that we're going to talk about, different ways to do property and shares and stuff like that to help subsidize um, kind of a lack of uh, employment money, really. I mean, I'm, I'm in the nonprofit business, so we don't make a whole lot of money uh, on our salary. So by looking at all these different sources, I've just kind of realized, hey, there are ways of increasing your net worth, even if you don't have a very high W-2 job. And for those, a W-2 job is? Career money, money you get from your job, taxable dollars that the government tries to take at the most rapid rate possible. <laughs> So in Australia, we call that a PAYG employment job. So a, a PAYG is a pay-as-you-go. So the employer withholds tax as you go. Yeah. So all that yep, stuff. Yep. But it's interesting, Nick, like the moment that you mention uh, these streams of revenue, I think on one of the first podcast episodes, we actually did have a few people reach out with uh, number one, the disdain uh, in you, the host, and number two, that they wanted more clarity around these uh, streams of revenue. And I actually got a message on Instagram from Houston Chorley. Hi guys, I was listening to one of your recent pods and the topic came up, millionaires have five sources of income. I know this is asking Picasso what brush he uses, but do you count all different shares a source of income? Random question, but I know I tend to find these concepts a bit wishy-washy unless there is some clarity. Cheers for the awesome work love the show and the books. So yeah, there was a lot of, um, and I'm the same thing, Nick, like you you see this article and you sent me an article before we press record about seven streams of income. And one of them was just like so dumb. And it's like, okay, we're making up points here for a blog. Yeah. I think you're talking about interest income. 
And that one actually came out of the, the United States IRS did a study of millionaires. And the interest income, obviously, if you have millions of dollars, is going to be worth more. And that was kind of the silly one. But I mean, really, when you're when you're kind of bootstrapping this, when you're trying to identify and find and you actually track your money, because I know you're, I've read your book, Sort Your Money Out. It's a great book. It's a helpful way for people with low income to actually uh, achieve a higher net worth if you follow that spending plan. And part of that is, is where is your money going? And where are you adding to your money? So even though interest income kind of seems silly, like especially when inflation is low, you get like barely anything from your from your bank, but there are different ways and different um, opportunities to stack and make that interest income actually worth a category in itself. Yeah, and I think I want to attack this episode, particularly around what we think are the main pillars of income for the Garden Variety podcast listener. Yeah, and answering the question that came in from Instagram, mm. looking at shares specifically, I would I would categorize shares generally altogether. I would almost put a semicolon, if you will, between shares and dividend income shares. Because you can have a lot of high growth stocks, which are just getting blasted right now in this current bear market. Mm. But the people with a very high dividend income portfolio, stocks like American shares of Johnson & Johnson, um, Nike is a decent producer, or any of these, Exxon Mobil. Or any of the Australian yeah. banks, even. Yeah. Yeah, any financial bank is putting off, you know, two, three, four percent dividend, which I actually do think that is kind of the differentiation between those two is when you have a stock that's dividend based mm. because you're gonna get that either quarterly or monthly check from them no matter what the stock price is doing. Yeah. Well we'll uh I'm sure we'll discuss that when we uh get to that point because I think we may deviate slightly on our opinion of these points and we're gonna talk about it. And along the way we'll share our own sources of income and be as transparent as possible. But the first point, I think we should just cover off, as you said, like number one, most people listening, their main source of income is their J-O-B. It's the bread and butter. <laughs> Bring home that bacon. The J-A-A-B. Yeah. And I think we don't need to camp around this too much, but around this stuff, like I replied a heap of examples to Houston and he said, uh, thanks. At the moment, it seems that I just have two. But as the millionaire next door, which is a, a book and we can talk about that later, I'm an over accumulator of wealth though. I suppose if I had a few more, it would make it certain. I just think I'm too lazy for more sources. And this is what I said to him. You don't have to have seven income sources because I think there are heaps of millionaires that are just entrepreneurs and do heaps of stuff by nature. Like because I'm an entrepreneur by nature, I'll always want to be out there doing stuff. But it's totally okay if you love your job and you just salary sacrifice to retirement savings or superannuation or 401k. It's totally okay if you love your job and you buy rental property and not have totally. 15 and, sources. Yeah, and you can you can definitely be a millionaire, certainly without seven income streams. And, and that IRS um, study that I was referring to earlier, they actually said, they looked through, you know, obviously they've got a lot of data on American millionaires. So they went through and figured out that 65% of the American millionaires that they looked at only had three income streams, 45% had four, and 30% had five or more. So really the IRS study actually rebuffets this whole episode. So thanks for joining <laughs> us today. We'll see you later. <laughs> yeah, but Nice I, knowing you. You know, 
you've always heard, you know, don't have all your eggs in one basket. Diversification is very important. So I think that makes sense. Like mm. if people stop listening to podcasts and, you know, Zuckerberg is right and everyone just joins the metaverse and no one's listening, they're all experiencing, you're going to have to diversify and find other ways to make up for it. So I think it's just a safety net to try to diversify. It's not unnecessary. So I think like if you want to say, okay, my job is my number one source of income and it is my main pillar of wealth and it is for a lot of us. I mean, everyone is a walking annuity. Everyone is a walking ATM, aren't they? Like every week you trade your time for money and it spits out cash at the end of the week. So we have to protect that source of revenue the most. So that could mean things like I'm always leaning into my career field. I'm always making sure I'm working on me as a person to make myself unfireable. And this is the reason, like this whole reason why we wrote the book, Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money, because it is most important that you nail the career side of your life before you worry about these other streams of income. Because it's hard to buy shares if you don't have a good income and you're using all your money to live, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, using your nine to five to fund all these other ventures is by far the easiest way to improve your net worth position. So if there's a way that you can you know, get in front of your boss more, if there's a way that you can get a raise, I don't know what the job economy is in Australia, but I know I've got many friends that are switching careers every two to three years because every time they're getting a 20% raise, where if you stay in your same company, it's pretty hard to get a 20% raise there. So they are maximizing their early years, their good years, trying to increase their uh, standard job income as much as possible so that they can then fund these other types of investments that, you know, if you want to be a millionaire, it's helpful to do. And we all need to start somewhere. I mean, I think it's an exception that someone leaves high school and rolls into their own business and's never had a job in their life and they create this weird franchise and it explodes and the rest is history. Like, when we talk about this stuff, it's almost like we have to exclude outliers from both ends of the spectrum. <laughs> like you have to exclude someone who leaves school and never has a job because that's not an accurate representation of the majority. And you have to exclude those who have just left school, didn't go to university, invented something or they wrote a song and they're now a, like a billionaire. Like we have to exclude those uh, outliers when we are talking about this stuff. So I think we can move on from the whole job thing, but your career is so important. And even at the time of recording this, the census, the My Millennial Money census uh, is live. At the very instant now, the second most priority thing, if I can't even speak right because it's, I don't do podcasts, Nick, at 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> So I'm still waking up. <laughs> but the second <laughs> biggest priority of the My Millennial Money people at the moment is to increase income. And a lot of us can do that without doing much change in our life because you do have a job, you do provide value. And speaking for all 370 million Americans, we all agree. We want more income also. <laughs> there you go. So what have we got? So number one, job. Number two, talk to me. Side hustle. Side hustle. I don't think that was the official verbiage in any of the readings that we did, whether it was report or the article, but 
I think side hustle is appropriate for millennials, right? We we're known as the gig economy. We're we're that kind of generation. So yeah, side hustle I think is a way to certainly add to if you man, if you don't have kids, trust me, I've got two kids, you have more time than you know what to do with. So using that opportunity provided to you while you are young, while you have time, there are so many gigs or side hustles that you can get into. And immediately, like tomorrow, you can be making additional income after your job is done. What's your view on side hustles? Because I've been quite vocal on my, I guess, view of when you should and shouldn't do a side hustle. Do you have any views on side hustles? Yeah, I I can be very persistent. I can be very together for a very short amount of time. Mm. So... I can kind of get stuck on a side hustle and I will just max that out for three months. And then I'm like, okay, I'm, I've burned myself out. I went in too heavy. I got to slow down. But like, I mean, do you want to hear about some of my side hustles that I've done? Yeah. Like we had, we had a house um, near downtown and the, it afforded us to have some extra rooms. We didn't have any kids at the time. So we would list out two different bedrooms on our second floor that we were not using and especially on weekends where popular events were coming in, it was a sporting event, there was a big conference, we would get a couple hundred dollars just per night on these rooms that we weren't using, listed them on Airbnb, and you know we didn't have to list them for days we didn't want to, but if we felt like we wanted some extra money, my wife and I would just clean up real quick. We already had the listing set. We'd put it out knowing there's a big event coming in, and it was, you know, we'd do that probably... We probably only listed it maybe 20 times in a year, and every single time it was listed. Mm. So you're looking at, you know, two or three grand that year of just added income for literally 55 minutes worth of cleaning. Mm. So along the same times, I was also in kind of the downtown urban area. I didn't have kids. My wife was working nights. So I would Uber. I'd put my car on Uber, throw it up you know, get some additional income there. A lot of times I'd actually sit at my house and just wait for my phone to beep. And then I'd run out, jump in my car and go pick somebody up. And then once you're out there, you're out there. But, you know, I'd just kind of sit and wait. And I Ubered for about a year off and on. Um, You know, it's decent. You meet some interesting folks. You have some different stories uh, to tell and you make a little bit of income driving around. So Mm. I've I've done both Airbnb and Uber uh, as different little side hustles to add to the wealth. And then I always didn't tell my wife what I made, and I hid that into shares as quick as possible. All right. So healthy marriages, next episode, you're not the host. My, <laughs> my millennial marriage by Nick Bradley. <laughs> uh, I think it, it, you've touched on two things. So the side hustles that you did on the side, they really didn't take much energy or much investment. Like you had the spare rooms and you could put up with some randos in your house in exchange for some money. And you had the car and you had the time and the technology of Uber was there. So I think Uber is an interesting one. Like I think with all the laws changing and the competitive nature of other rideshare things and all that, I don't know if it's as side hustly as it used to be, uh, but sure. Yeah, this was a bit ago. Like literally I was doing Uber before Lyft, yeah. I think even existed or at least it, it hadn't left San Francisco at the time. Yeah. So yeah, it's just about literally I found that window of time. Mm-hmm where Uber for someone who didn't want to put a lot of effort into it was still profitable. Yeah. And I think those opportunities always come up, you know, especially if we are headed towards the big R word recession, mm. 
all sorts of opportunities. Like Uber came out of the last recession we had. Mm. Lyft and rideshare and all those things, when the economy slows down, ingenuity comes up and provides you different opportunities that weren't there before. So, yeah, absolutely. So you had the time, you had the stuff. And, and the second thing you touched on, that revenue that you made, you put straight into investing. And also, and I guess the third thing that I thought was interesting, you said you didn't do it forever. Like it was a seasonal thing and it, it does lead into, and I'll repeat these for the people who are new to the podcast. Uh, my view on side hustles is four views. Number one, you would do a side hustle to clean up any short-term debt. Or if you've had credit cards that you want to get rid of, you've got personal loans that you want to clear, you would side hustle, put the money straight onto the debt and get rid of that because you don't want to be side hustling for 50 years and not having a life. Like it needs to be short. The second thing is you've got a short-term goal. Uh, remember Simon when he wanted to pay for the sleeve, he used to side hustle to pay for his tattoos. Like that, yeah, that was- a, Yeah, he was Ubering also. Yeah, that's right. So that was more of a um, short-term goal, go out, smash and grab, get some money, meet your goal and get on with your life. The third reason I would suggest people do a side hustle is to start to do something on the side. As in you work at a full-time marketing agency and you want to start doing weekend Instagram management or you know after hours or websites on the side and you're doing your side hustle to, to start to get things moving so you can one day quit your job and do your side hustle full-time. The fourth reason I would say that you do a side hustle is you just like doing it as more of a hobby and the income's just a bonus. It could be I've got a pottery wheel downstairs and I reenact scenes from Ghost every you know Saturday afternoon and you know I just like that. I might do a garage sale. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's just a hobby. Yeah. The overarching thing, Nico, is I don't believe your side hustle income should go into general revenue in your life because then what you're doing, you're just working more consuming more and getting stuck on a treadmill more that sucks your time. That hamster wheel of greed. Yeah. So we don't want to have to Uber every afternoon, every evening just to put that money into our bills. Yeah. When I was talking to people and they were like, why are you, why are you Ubering at night? I'm like, I'm an Uber at night because every time I make a hundred dollars a night, that's at the time, two shares of Apple stock. And eventually, the Apple stock is going to take over my need to actually do physical work. Mm. So that's just an example, my views on side hustles. It's a legitimate thing. I will say on the side hustle thing, though, I've seen stuff online where people are like, here's my side hustle, and it's, it's, it's my passive income. I sell these widgets online. I buy bulk from Alibaba, and then I repurpose them on Amazon or eBay or whatever, it's my passive income. And it's, it's like, well, there's not much passive about that. Like, so you, yeah. I don't know if there's that many actual sources of passive income, less than what we would think, I would imagine. Okay, we'll take a quick break because it's been about 20 minutes and I want to pay the bills and then we'll just keep going. Have you got like another hour, Nick? Because we might need it. Sure. All right, sweet. We'll be back after this. 
If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, what do we got? Number three, Nick. Normal shares, brokerage, mm. the worldwide web of investing in the stock market. So shares, hey, these are what we are really getting into. I, I think equity ownership is a true passive income, particularly if you are using dividend stocks to fund your life. But I, I will say it's interesting. I don't know that many people who are living off uh, dividend income. <laughs> So it's like, I've got the income, but I'm just reinvesting it, right? And that would be akin to every time I get overtime from my first source of income, I don't live off it. I just invest it. And then one day you can compound it all and then have to just wake up in the morning and breathe and not have to actually exert any energy for income, right? (laughs) That's the goal. Yeah. It's like you start, you know, you already said I'm from Alaska. You start at the top of the mountain with a small snowball and you push that puppy and it's gathering some steam and growing and growing and growing. Uh, there are some good dividend income calculators. If you Google just dividend income calculator, you can literally say, I can afford $200 a month or $400 a month to buy dividend income shares. And then how long will it take me to replace my income? Mm. So you can do the math. Someone else will do the math for you and you can figure out, wow, within 15 or 20 years from now, I could be totally done with my day job, replace and keep my lifestyle on just dividend income stocks. Did I send you the TikTok this morning with the guy with the uh, Range Rover? No. Uh, It was one of those FinTalk things. It was pretty funny. And often these things are so simplistic. He was talking about shares and he's like, you know, you buy a $130,000 Range Rover and then... In four years, you've lost 60 grand. Like, that's crap. That's a depreciating asset. But you take the 130 grand, put it in equities at 10% a year, that 13 grand, that's your payment. Like, done. New car for the rest of your life. I mean, that's ultra simplistic because, you know, can you get a 10% year on year dividend yield without drawing down the capital? I don't know. Do you have to pay tax on that? So, 
it's an interesting concept to think about though, isn't it? Well, not to mention, do you have the 130 cash? Thank you. <laughs> like This is assuming he's dropped 130 cash on this depreciating asset. I'm assuming he has loaned that out and he is the dividend income to the bank. <laughs> yeah. So I think, so just on shares as a third category, to the questioner in my Instagram inbox, if you own shares in Apple, Tesla, CBA, Woolworths, and an ETF, uh, you know, a, a VTI, a VTS, IVV, you know, NDQ, any equity, I'm personally saying shares, any shares I hold counts for one income stream, that class shares. Now, do we deviate on this because you're- Just a little bit. Yeah. And how are you deviating? I guess I would classify- Growth stocks, so like you mentioned, Tesla, yeah. Apple does give a dividend, but they are officially still a growth stock. At the time of this recording, they're one of the only growth stocks mm. in, the, in the market. Um, so there are purposeful companies that are just trying to grow. And if they don't grow, they are in big trouble. Uh, Meta currently is in big trouble mm. because they're not growing, but they're still pretending they're a growth stock. Where Big players, companies that own companies like Johnson and Johnson in America. You may not know the name Johnson and Johnson. Now we do. But I guarantee you buy their products mm. because they own a conglomerate of different. Every shampoo in the market basically is Johnson and Johnson. Well, it's Johnson every, and Johnson on Unilever, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. So they've the, exp- yeah, yeah they've really expanded the whole brand. Mm. But J and J is the ticker symbol here, still in the states. Mm. I think they're paying a six percent or so dividend yield. So if you are specifically on purpose. In fact, I did an episode, I think, in November on My Millennial Investor Mm. about how to get free pizza and free coffee for each month. And it was about finding companies that you already consume as a consumer and investing in those companies and then taking that dividend back each month to pay for the things you're consuming. So if you're purposefully, in my opinion, buying shares of dividend companies to take that dividend and not reinvest it to pay for things in your life, then I that's where I put the semicolon in between growth kind of stock shares and dividend on purpose shares. Right. Because one of the articles that you sent me, the dude was like, kind of like you who I disagree with. He's like, um, third source of revenue, uh, dividend yield, fourth source, capital gain from equity. So short- cut it whatever way you want. I'm just saying whether you've got dividend yield or you're selling at growth stocks and harvesting the gain, all roads lead to Rome, but you do you. And some people will agree with you. And maybe if you've got a huge ego, you will count equities as two. (laughs) (laughs) So you can have more more points. But what I will say, and it does speak to... um, you know, some other sources of income. And this is kind of the thing. I think within that category, if we can just agree that point three being shares, within that category of source of income, you do have diversification. So you don't all have growth stocks. You don't just have income stocks. You don't just have one sector because you want diversification much like your career, right? You want to be as diverse and as flexible as possible so you can future-proof your career. You want diversification in each pillar of these income sources, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. You, if you have, let's say you accidentally bought Tesla six years ago and you bought a thousand shares for ten dollars each. You know, I'm making these numbers up, but you know, Tesla has gone up to twelve hundred before the stock split last year, twelve hundred dollars per share. That is a now huge. It's probably by far the biggest position in your portfolio. Just because you saw something that said, hey, this guy's making electronic cars. You should buy some shares. So you buy some shares. I think at that point you should sell a chunk of that Tesla and then reallocate that into probably some heavier um, dividend income-like stocks so that you're not just overweighted. And in that essence, you are using growth shares to then fund your lifestyle shares of dividend. Yeah. Anything else on shares or do you want to move on to the next one? I'm bored. Let's keep going. All right. So the fourth one is property. So a lot of people in Australia love property. A lot of people everywhere love property. I'm talking property as an investment class, as an investment vehicle. So what do you reckon, Nick? Yeah. I accidentally became a landlord. Well, not accidentally. I became a landlord five years ago because the house that we had just rehabbed, that we had poured my blood, sweat, and tears into and fixed up in a nice, cute little Cape Cod, uh, my wife said, I don't want to live here anymore. So we purchased that house in the more urban area downtown, did it all over again, spent 13 months rehabbing the house, um, but kind of wanted to hold on to that cute little Cape Cod because it was in a really good school district. So in America, a lot of the houses really school dependent on the public schools. So we kept the house just in case we wanted to move back when we had some little lads running around. So we became landlords. We found a family that wanted to live there uh, and started doing it kind of because we had to, kind of felt like we were stuck. And it worked out pretty well. And then I have since sold that house and then turned that into two different rental properties um, along the way. So by being a hesitant landlord at first, kind of dipping my toe in the water, it really did work out well. And I, I'm a big fan of property investing. It's different in the States, isn't it? Like Australia actually sucks when it comes to property. Like it's so expensive. And there's for any investor, there's like bugger all yield. And I don't know if it'll ever change. I hope it does. But when it comes to property, likewise, if you are going down this road full ham, and you're like, I want to be property, property is one of the pillars, we have to diversify within that. Like you're going to buy different types of stock. You are going to buy in different regions. You might head down the rabbit hole and start to do mini developments. You might head down the rabbit hole and start to do other fun things and dual locks and all that. Because really with these whole seven things, the overarching thing is diversifying your funnel of income, right? So the big top of the funnel because if one of them drops or, and I think a lot of these seven things, they will be kind of seasonal, right? Like with your job aside, it might not be always printing money on this thing and that one might not always be printing money. But I think, yeah, diversification across all of these points and within these points. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty debt adverse. I'm becoming mm. a little bit more open to debt. So the reason why we actually sold that one house that you know was kind of the cute little house and maybe the better neighborhood was I kind of did the math on some other properties that I looked at. I could sell that house and actually buy these other, like with the money from that house, reallocated to two different investment properties in a not so desirable neighborhood and not have a mortgage on it. Because I am, you know, as you 
pointed out earlier, 40 years old. So I have lived through and had a job and a mortgage that I was paying in 2008 when the global financial crisis hit. And people all over you know, my state were losing their jobs. They were foreclosing on their homes. And that just kind of jarred me. I'm, I'm one of the millennials that have lived through lots of bad instances uh, in terms of financial crises. And so I'm definitely leery. If you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to go full ham and start really investing. You know, you mentioned TikTok earlier. I saw TikTok the other day that this there's like this group of bros and they're like, dude, how many houses do you have? And it's like 10 doors and $10 million and I got a thousand doors and 32 million. Well, obviously these guys, if I'm assuming their numbers are inflated anyway, but if those are fully leveraged mm. houses in I don't know what kind of area you're in, but if you're in a non-diversified area, let's say the factory shuts down, let's say the bank lays off a couple thousand people, those guys aren't going to have those properties anymore because they don't have the renters to fill the homes. So I'm pretty, um, I'm a little too debt adverse in regards to rental property, but also I think that is another way of diversifying because by diversifying the types of debt you have, helps withstand, you know, recessions and depressions, you know, all along the way. Yeah, I must confess, I like, sure, I own properties, full disclosure. Um, I, I'm i like you, I don't love debt. And, you know, you see these things online where everyone's like, as you said, like, oh, I've got a portfolio of $5 million, for example. Okay, so if you've got $5 million portfolio, how much debt are you carrying? And is that worth the risk? 4.95599 million. Yeah. I'm just working out loosely now. Um, I'm just... I'm going to work out what my LVR is across everything. Should I do Jeopardy music or will you edit yeah. this out? So my LVR across my property portfolio is about 60%. Uh, within that, I use two lenders. I'm very personally gun shy uh, with having one lender because if there is a downturn, if something happens and a bank changes its policy, there's less chance of all the debt being called in. And I think for me, like our own money stories have come from what we've learned from our parents. And my father was pretty much very conservative. Like he'd never had credit cards. He would always be very gun shy about doing extra investment properties. He was pretty simple as in, oh, I spend less than I earn and I'll just put the rest in retirement savings. Like what's the problem? And, you know, there was, you know, they did have an investment property, which um, they bought for my nan to, to live in. But I mean, they did well, but he always drilled into me, you know, because he was around during those interest rates on properties that are like up near 20%. And he's like, you know, you'll get flushed. Like all these people riding on the line and we know the biggest boom and bust people in our economies and worlds and all that are the property developers because they just go full on in with all this debt. So for me, I'm not really that keen to be running on the line. I just, and you know, we've got the My Millennial Property Podcast and people love that and Go for it. Knock yourself out. But for me personally, I'm just a little bit, yeah, I just don't want to carry lots and lots of debt. Yeah, and I definitely think there are different ways to get into the property world 
without carrying lots of debt. I mean, let me ask you, do you include REITs, real estate investment trusts in the property category? No, I've included, well, I technically you should, but in my simplistic analysis, because they're in my brokerage account and I do have um, a fair bit in REITs, I really like the REITs because of the yield. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think you can kind of put it anywhere. You're splitting hairs a little bit. It's, it mm. is, you typically acquire the REIT in your brokerage account, mm. but it is, you're, you're actually owning property. You have become a shareholder of a company that owns property mm. and they're giving typically a pretty good, you know, return in terms of yield and dividend. So like you can almost look at it and you can create a little cycle of if you know that you're going to make, let's say, after expenses and CapEx and you, you've got your savings for taxes and you make, let's say, $300 a month on your property and you don't need that right now to pay for your living, invest that 300 back into a REIT, get the interest income from that REIT to help pay the CapEx, and then you're creating this little cycle of REITs paying for your property, property paying for more REITs, and it's but a good little closed-loop system. But do you know the reason why I like REITs more so than the the yield because it's fun to say yeah yeah but the the reason i like the REITs is because if i look at my portfolio in terms of property most of the property that's you know physical real property that i own well all of it is residential property the REITs and you've got commercial REITs yeah well in australia there's no resi REITs oh well welcome to the Great land of America. We we will leverage anything for you. You got a bad idea, we will monetize that. Yeah, so I can't like buy a REIT where a company has just purchased lots of residential properties and the company goes to the market and gets tenants for those properties. I mean, maybe I need to, to launch one in Australia, but yeah, it's, so I really have my industrial and commercial property exposure. And for me, if I'm being honest... Those REITs, and you know, I was texting you the other day when I was buying more. When there's like a bit of a, I don't know, spec to the market, those listed like property trusts far out. That's where you can make some money, because the share price can deviate from the actual value of the asset pretty easy, right? Yeah, I mean, I've I've looked at some more REITs recently. I actually don't own any right now, but I'm kind of getting in a little bit more because of the downturn of the market, looking at more yield kind of things, looking at more dividend things. And really, you can if you do your research and you look at what types of properties the, the real estate investment trust is holding, you can even find your own niche that you want. Like, I like to be in uh, class A office space in large cities. Well, there's a read out there that's only focused on the, the best office space in New York and in Chicago and in LA and Sydney and Melbourne. And if you like the um, storage. I mean, I don't know if you guys buy too much crap in Australia, but storage business is huge in the States. And you, there's a read out there that just does storage and they're mm. buying commercial properties that are storage based. And, you know, that's, that's a good thing. Actually, I want to, I'd love to look in and get in a little storage unit place, but there's no room around me. Well, I think maybe you should flag to do an episode in the new year about the different types of REITs. Because this is the cool thing about the world that we're living with technology, like Australia isn't a huge market. Like there's probably more people in greater LA than there is in Australia. But like if you did want some extra property exposure 
to commercial storage in USA, well, you can just jump on your brokerage account and buy a, a US REIT. Done. Yeah. And other while we're on property, before we mm. you know get to our other ones real quick, there are two different things that are kind of new. It's not REIT, but it is and has some oversight. I'm assuming you guys haven't heard of the heard the advertisements that we have on farm yields. There's a company that you can invest in, and they buy farmland, and they rent that farmland out to the farmer who then grows the vegetables and yada yada, and you actually get a return on that land from the farm yield. And then there's also companies that are looking at personal, like you can go look up a project that a house flipper or a developer is looking at and they need $10,000 and here's what they're going to do with the money. Here's what it's going to look like. And they're paying, you know, 10 to 12 to 14% on a personal loan. That's a little, I would throw that in side hustle more than I would property, but it's a way of, it's a way of investing kind of looking at like, Hey, like, it's going to take a four-month project, and you're going to get an annual return of 12%. Like, I'm willing to take a risk on this guy. And they show you the old projects and stuff that's happened. But there's the internet. Guys, what a great thing. There's so many ways to make money if you look for it. It's fantastic, isn't it? I, I just want to maybe walk back on some of my comments. I'm just looking on the ASX website at the property REITs in Australia. I'm just saying there may be... Okay, there's a REIT here called Agricultural Land Trust. All right, yeah. That's the Agricultural the Land Trust is a registered scheme that focuses on the ownership of rural property for the purpose of generating rental income and capital appreciation. So, yeah, I'll, I'll walk back on some of my comments about um, maybe the options in Australia. I'm just having a scrub through here. Look at this one. This one's interesting. Invest in the thousands of properties that Glenn James personally owns. That's that's a fun one. I don't think that's <laughs> ASX listed yet. <laughs> no, that's a private one. <laughs> um, oh, there's a REIT here. And again, everyone, these are just examples. I can't speak for them. And I haven't heard of most of them. Hotel property investments. They literally just buy hotel properties. So look, REITs is a, a good way to get into property investings without the debt. Now, I'm just having a look here. National Storage REIT, NSR. So we do have a, there's a chain here called National Storage um, and it is a REIT. Let me just open my superhero account. I use superhero now, everyone. I did a review on YouTube and we'll put the link in the show notes. is this what they call dead air for podcasting? National <laughs> Storage, NSR. I'm just seeing NSR. National Storage REIT. I'm just trying to see if there's a bit of info here. Yeah, National Storage is the largest owner-operator self-storage centers in Australia and New Zealand with 180 centers providing tailored storage solutions to over 70,000 residential and commercial customers across Australia. NSR is the first independent, internally managed and fully integrated owner and operators self-storage centers to be listed on the ASX. So there you go. REITs for everyone. You get a REIT, you get a REIT. But you just know like this whole diversification play, right? If things move, you might get some big swings in your portfolio. So, you know, we don't want all our eggs in the one basket. I think we just created a whole nother category. Number five, REITs. Forget property. You got personal property with your money and your debt, but 
REIT, number five, on Nick Bradley's most watched income streams. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. I I think, well, let's do a recap. Um, and then we can just get into some wild stuff. Number one, job. Number two, side hustle. Number three, shares. Number four, property. And again, it could be 4A, <laughs> capital, 4B, income. <laughs> um, 4C, REIT, or five. Uh, let's talk about some other stuff that, and I do want to talk about business as a whole, but we might do that at the end. Nick, talk to me about your options stuff that you've been doing. Yeah, I've been doing options for quite a while and I'll definitely do an episode next year in 2023 on, I'll probably do a basic options, like know what options are which, like know the Greeks, there's some different terms, but just in general, I actually came upon options trading because of the dividend stocks that I already owned. So I was looking at how to maximize the dividend. So Coca-Cola, for instance. So you got 100 shares of Coca-Cola. It's a pretty boring stock. Like what, what exciting thing is Coca-Cola going to do that is this going to make the stock surge? It's fairly flat, nothing really going on, but it gives a 6% dividend yield. How can you make money while you're just kind of chilling on Coca-Cola? And you can sell a covered call against 100 shares of basically any company that you have. And you can do that on a weekly, monthly, or quarterly expiration date. And you get paid to basically put your stock at risk. So let's say you own Coke at $40 per share. And you're saying, I will sell it to somebody at $50 per share. Somebody in the other end of that contract says, I think it will get to $50 per share by this date. So therefore, I will give you $100 for the option to buy your shares of Coca-Cola. If that contract never hits, let's say it never gets to $50, you keep the $100, you reinvest it in whatever you want, and the money's yours to take. If it goes to $55, that individual gets your stock at 50, so they made the extra $5. You made the money from 40 to 50, and you get to keep the $100 for the options contract. So I've been doing options trading like that, starting off on the covered calls, and there's a lot of different stuff that we'll cover on My Millennial Investor coming up. But, I mean, I'm doing weekly calls and adding, you know, about $60 per week in options trading to the portfolio and then reinvesting that into the shares itself. So, it's a pretty good cycle. And I just want to point out, like, while you are dicking around with options and you kind of are doing it because you're interested in it, right? And it's keeping you interested in shares and investing and all that stuff but you haven't gone down to the local bank and said, hey, can I borrow 300 grand against my house and then go and write options contracts? Right. Or have you? With, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> not, not yet. With stocks. You, I mean, you almost lost your house when you were experimenting. but That was a different episode. Yes. Um, with stocks that I already like, that I already own and or that I want to own, so never get yourself, I mean, same way you can over leverage yourself with property, you can over leverage yourself with options. So I only put my money at quote unquote risk of stocks that I already own and or want to own. So I'm not really, like when you own 100 shares of a company, when you write a covered call, you're only risking the potential upside. So if your stock hits that strike price that you are comfortable selling at, that's the only risk you have is if it goes to the moon. Well, is Coke going to go to the moon? Is Johnson & Johnson going to go to the moon? Like, These are pretty mundane companies, and that's a fun way to get some additional weekly income. So, like, I don't want to be that guy, and this is why all these lists actually mean nothing and they're just talking points. 
<laughs> you could say your options trading is your side hustle. <laughs> you could. <laughs> so we're learning do what you want and label it however you want. Isn't isn't that the great thing? Yeah. We just came up with another seven. Yeah. Uh, cover call, you got puts, you got <laughs> da, 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 da. We could have options, 10 different options plays just alone. Mm. Absolutely. If you, if you do it well enough, maybe it becomes your job. And I think if we're now moving into some of the things that wealthy individuals do, and I've had experience doing this, um, not necessarily like me personally, but when I worked uh, in a financial planning firm in the city for high net worth clients, they would do loans. So for example, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, there may be an, uh, a firm there that lends money to people uh, and they're a legal firm and they organize contracts and raise money to lend to people to buy property or to do whatever. So, you know, you might have people who can't get a loan for whatever reason. Uh, they may have just started a business or they want to do something specky and then they'll buy a house or whatever it is. And then some of the clients that we had with, you know, $20 million plus portfolios might put $500,000 of a loan into this agreement with someone who's borrowing that money and they're paying eight or 9% interest as opposed to a 5% interest that they could get at a bank. Money makes money. They're not kidding <laughs> around with that. Yeah, there you go. So, you know, one of the points... It could be loaning money to anyone. But th then again, like, so do you guys have like credit funds over there that you can just invest in? You would. Smaller things. I don't think bank-wise that much. There's the types of investments that you were just talking about. You need to be an accredited investor, which means you have to have a net worth of like $5 million. Yeah, and we call that a, a wholesale investor. Yeah, so the little fish like myself can't get into those types of things. Um, an interesting thing that I've seen some folks get into, and really this could be available for the not so uber wealthy, but I haven't dug in too much, but I do know somebody that actually um, invested in the royalties of a song. So I think it was Death Cab for Cutie. Do you know what that band is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say so, it wasn't Scooter Braun, was it? <laughs> no. They they purchased the at least a part of the licensing rights to one of the Death Cab for Cutie songs. And every time that streams on Spotify or Amazon or whoever, they get that, that percent back and they're making like 17% yield right now. Mm. But that's no song. different. But that kind of, for me, that category is private equity, right? Like, yeah. you, you know, you hear these movie people like, oh, we want to, we've created this movie, we've got, we've got to get investors and, you know, the more money you have, the more ways that you can use it to make other money. Isn't yeah, that saying like you need money Websites to make money? and crypto, the blockchain, NFTs, like those things are making it a little bit more accessible for maybe the person who might have 20 grand lying around and they're mm. looking for a fun way to invest it. They've, you know, they've got their plan for long-term stocks. They've got a, a property, but they're like, you know what? Let's get creative with this. I think it mm. was, uh, who was it? I don't know, Kendrick Lamar. I'm, I'm mm. sure that's not it. But like a, a fairly big name rapper last year was selling loyalty rights to his new songs 
uh, in regards to like you would own if you bought this NFT, you would own a percentage of the all future royalty rights to this song. So that would been if it was Kendrick, you probably would have made a lot of money. I'm sure it wasn't. It was probably MC Hammer or something. Yeah. So there you go. Like you. So that's is that like another category? So we've we've covered options, loans, investing in IP, because that's what it is, isn't it? You're investing in IP. Yeah. Yeah. Intellectual property. Yeah. Um, we haven't covered my favorite one. I actually saw oh. this the other day. My new favorite form of passive income is you become the prime minister of the United Kingdom for 45 days. Yes. You quit You quit and or get fired, and then you collect an annual pension of 129,000 pounds every single year. Wow. 45 days. They changed that rule in Australia. Like you've, I think one of our prime ministers, um, Tony Abbott, he was only in for like, I don't even know, a couple of years. But it was like, if you don't get this hurdle of, two and a half or three years or whatever, you don't get that gravy train for the rest of your life. That's common sense. Way to go, guys. That's mm. that's pretty rare in politics. Yeah. Have we missed anything else? Options, loans? I mean, we touched on interest income. Like, sure, if you've got $2 billion in the bank account and it's earning, you know, 3%, I'm sure you can live off that. <laughs> yeah. I actually just bought my first bond ever. Um, and I've, you know, I've been financial advising back in the day. I've mm-hmm. been a stock investor for over two decades, but I've never purchased a bond. And I, because I, the opportunity never arose for me and specifically in the States. And I don't know if you guys have any inflation tracking bonds. <laughs> oh. So like in the States it's called an iShare. So you have to be a U.S. citizen to purchase it, but I bought an iShare bond and it tracks the inflation. So it looks back six months. So for six months of the bond that I'll hold, it'll pay me 9.2%. And then in the next six months, it's going to pay the next average of inflation, which is like 6.7. So overall, I'm going to average about 8% for holding this bond for one year. So oh, I don't know if you, Okay. If you, is that the... Um, it's listed and the ticker is LQDI? No, this actually like went to Treasuries Direct like oh. with the government and bought a bond. Right. There are some treasury inflation protected ETFs yeah, out there. I'm looking at uh, an ETF. Uh, you said iShares, so I'm like on BlackRock website. iShares inflation hedged corporate bond ETF. Gotcha. In the yeah, US. but like that's another way. Like if you if you have money and let's say you know that it's not your emergency fund, but you don't have to touch it for six months or twelve months, and it's money that would have been sitting in your savings account. Mm. Uh, like I took some of my savings money and just bought a bond for the first time ever because the yield was just too good. Like you're not going to see this again, assuming inflation comes down. Yeah. So I'm like, what I did once uh, with some clients, uh, and it was obviously client specific, used the Vanguard Australian Fixed Interest ETF, and it's effectively an ETF that invests in bonds, short-term government yeah. bonds. They're buying um, different bonds at different expiration dates. and Yeah, yeah. So the um, I'm just looking at the um, the top holdings. Actually, can you share your screen on Riverside? Yes, you can. Let's try this, shall we, Nick? This podcast probably sucks, so if you're still listening, whatever. Um, yeah, see this here? Yeah. So they've got uh, – so this ETF – the Vanguard Australian Fixed Interest ETF. Um, 
I mean, the returns are pretty average um, at the moment. <laughs> Year to date, negative 10. Look, remember, just because it's a bond and fixed interest doesn't, diversify, it, diversify. It doesn't mean it's capital secure. Um, this is the worst time in history. You know, as of, as of time recording, this is the worst time in history for the 60-40 portfolio. So 60% stocks, 40% bonds. We've never had a worse 60-40 mm. portfolio since they've been tracking it for the last 120 years. Mm. And we're, we're actually recording this, guys, on the 2nd of November, uh, 2022. Um, but there you go. Uh, so back to this, like, so in this uh, Vanguard fixed interest ETF, They've got Australian government bond at a rate of 3.25% maturing in 2025. I mean, the worst time to buy bonds, and I don't know, why did you do it? Um, isn't the worst time to buy bonds when interest rates are increasing? Well, I, I physically bought the bond. Yeah. So when you actually hold the paper bond mm -hmm. you, and you know that you're holding it, you're not worried about the yield in the paper changing hands where the ETF, they're actually trading those. That's right. So and the, when they need in the to. trades, that's where it gets you. Yeah. Because, yeah. and that's where they're losing money because yields are going up. You bought a bond five years ago for 0.25%. Mm. Well, now you can buy a different bond for 5%. So everyone's trying to dump these old bonds and therefore it's driving down the price of that ETF where I actually bought the paper so I have a guaranteed rate if I hold that bond for one year that I will get 8.15%. So I'm on this. Um, I actually had some clients that did buy Australian government bonds direct from uh, the Australian government. So where are we? There are two types of bonds. Let's just have a look here. Oh, I'm not prepared enough to um, to have a look here. Yeah, I mean the the absolute peak time, and I, I think yeah, for you, Nick, it's different because you've bought the the bond, you've got the coupon, and they've said, Nick Bradley, we will give you X amount percent return guaranteed for this period. Go away. Right. Much different than like in the states, the TLT purchase. It's an ETF that purchases ten year and twenty year bonds. Hmm. That's in the toilet. That that's lost like sixty percent of its value this year because the yields are going crazy, and therefore the actual bond is worth less. But if you bought a government bond, uh, I don't know, at the height of the GFC, at like eight percent for five years or nine percent for ten years, you've done very well out of it. Yeah, if you're locked in and you are not going to try to resell that bond, congratulations, sir. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, bonds, am I right? The last thing I want to speak about is when you own your own business. Uh, I own a business, but within that, I think it's important like every category, shares, property, your job, loans, you've got to diversify within. And the, the business that I run, Sort Your Money Out or Simo Interactive, you know, with all these podcasts, we make money any way we can. We get mediocre hosts like Nick Bradley, put them on, create a podcast and not pay them much. Woo -woo. So, you know, we've got podcast ads, we've got podcast show partners, we've got an email list that we're trying to, you know, put some ad space in there. We've got online courses, we do sponsored episodes, we can do paid 
Facebook posts, Instagram posts. Like within the business, there is much diversification of revenue streams. And at different times, one might be more than the other. And yeah, it's just diversified. Another source of revenue that I've got, which is, and I would like to say this is outside of my business, is the book, Sort Your Money Out and Sort Your Career Out, because that book is not owned by the business. It's owned by another entity. And we didn't produce that. It's, you know, the publisher produced that. And I get uh, royalties for every book sold. I mean, it's not much, but it adds up. Like it's a good little passive income for me. You're supposed to talk when I when I stop talking. <laughs> How do you think I have anything to add to the business? Yeah. So, I don't know. Have, have we done enough? It's been an hour. Everyone's bored. I, wa- I want to... Do you have anything else to add that we didn't cover? The one thing we didn't... I mean, you kind of crapped on it earlier, talking about selling stuff online mm. is um, just like there there is money to be made with your hobbies. So, yeah. I think if you're looking at that like... My sister really likes to go to thrift stores and she looks at, you know, Goodwill and all these other different stores, like secondhand stores. And every once in a while, she finds something that's worth like a hundred bucks and she'll look on eBay and she'll post it and she'll uh, resell it and package it over somebody. Um, so like just find something in terms of like the, the side hustles, finding something that you already enjoy doing mm. and that you are doing. There are ways to monetize that. And like if you're not having fun, I don't know, it's probably not worth worth looking into. If if these seven things just bore you to death and you couldn't be bothered with working a job, well, hmm. have fun in your parents' basement. But like going from there, like find something you actually enjoy do and then look at how can I monetize this? I don't know if I was crapping on it too much. Like, so for example, the side hustle thing, like take Monica and thrifting and flipping stuff online. Like that's good because it's it's almost a hobby as well. And she has a day job and if she doesn't want to do it for a couple of months and whatever. Yeah, the Alibaba, like reselling that. like Oh, I was more crapping on it as in people say they're doing that and that's their passive income. Or it's like, well, there's not much passive yeah, yeah, about that. Really you've got to actually work in, in it. But it's a legitimate way. And it would be in, in the side hustle category of I'm doing this to build it up so I don't have to do my day job anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, li- if you like doing it. Yeah. Or I just do this. All the profits go into my share investing account. Or to orphans. Or to orphans. Hey, um, there's a book I would recommend anyone. It's a, it's a million years old. It's called The Millionaire Next Door and there's a follow-up called The Millionaire Mind by Thomas J. Stanley. Um, have you read The Millionaire Next Door? I read The Millionaire Next Door when I was 19 years old. Wow. So it is a million years old. Um, it is. They talk, they talk about uh, Bill drives a... 1981 Chevy Caprice, but he's a millionaire and you'd never know. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So the whole premise, well, well, actually, didn't Dave Ramsey recently do a, a revamped study of that now that Thomas J. Stanley isn't on the scene? That would make sense. If there's a way to capitalize, Glenn's always, or sorry, Dave is always <laughs> looking for. Hard to confuse two white bull guys uh, with a podcast. Um, so they, they they basically, it was that premise that like, most millionaires don't have the flashy cars. Most millionaires don't have the Gucci belts. Most millionaires don't do this, don't do that. In fact, I bought, there's a, I think he did a book, Stop Acting Rich, did he? 
Let me just. I don't Google know if it's that. the same guy. That that sounds yeah, like a is. book. Yeah. Stop acting. No, it is. It is. It, yep. Stop, Stop acting, acting rich. rich. It, yeah. it was the follow up from um, the Millionaire Next Door, and then this book that I've got in my hand, the Millionaire Mind. When was this published? Two thousand year two thousand. So Ooh, even that's getting a little dated. Yeah. Um, my friends, did we just uncover an opportunity? What's after Millionaire Next Door and Millionaire Mind? The Millionaire Podcaster. Mm. I want to read these eight parts at the very end of this book called The Millionaire Mind. Because this whole thing is like everyone wants to be a millionaire, blah, blah, blah. And here are the eight points that they basically talked about in The Millionaire Mind. One, understand the key success factors our economy continues and will continue to reward hard work, integrity, and focus. Two, never allow a lackluster academic record to stand in the way of becoming economically productive. Three, have the courage to take some financial risk and learn how to overcome defeat. Four, select a vocation that is not only unique and profitable, pick one you love. Five, be careful in selecting a spouse. Those who are economically productive married husbands or wives who had the characteristics that are compatible with success. Six, operate an economical productive household. Many millionaires prefer to repair or refurnish rather than buy new. Nah, I'm throwing out my LED screen when it's broken. Seven, follow the lead of millionaires when selecting a home. Study, search and negotiate aggressively. Eight, adopt a balanced lifestyle. Many millionaires are cheap dates and does not take a lot of money to enjoy the company of your family and friends. There you go, Nick. There you go. All right, see ya. Toodaloo. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.